everyone and welcome to the disability dish this is episode eight my name is janelle diaz i'm an assistant director in disability services and i am co-hosting with hi everybody jody rachens director of disability services we missed you this past uh past month, but we were very busy getting all of our students in, acclimated and set up for the semester. So we're really excited to be back and we've got an exciting topic today. Just as a reminder, the point of our podcast is really just to, you know, help ha find topics that we can actively and openly discuss ways that we can support the fellow disability community member, whether in the university, outside networks, everyday lives. It's just important and impactful way to just contribute to making effort to reduce shame and stigma around disability. Um, we plan to work always towards flipping the script and highlight the strengths that can show through various disabilities. Um, and so among the various initiatives that we're doing within our office, this, this monthly podcast just provides some representation and just general discussion around various topics on disability. And as always, we want you to make sure that you know that this is just a discussion, conversation, our opinions and perspectives on today's episode topic, which is navigating the workforce as a person with a disability. Um, and we have some two awesome guests with us today. Um, so I'm gonna start by having each of you state your name your role at the university or your role in general, um, your relationship with the word disability, if you feel like you have one. And I'll have Beth L start with us because we have two Beths with us today. Woo -woo, double Beth. Double Beth. Beth squared. <laughs> Honestly, like there is true Beth power in the room right now. Oh yeah. Um, so my name is Beth Lowell. I am the assistant Director of Career Services at UMass Lowell. I have been with UML for about four and a half years now and have been the career services liaison to disability services since I started here. And I was the liaison to disability services in my previous institution as well, where I worked in career services. Um, professionally, my relationship with the word disability really is through that relationship with disability services. Um, Working with disability services is a really small part of my larger job of advising all students, um, but I've gotten to work a little more closely with that population through this work. Personally, I'm the parent of a child with a disability, and so through kind of watching her growth and development, I've really come to appreciate more how broad that term is. And I really think in the context of the way I work with students, I see a lot of differing abilities, a lot of different strategies and maybe different kinds of ways to reach very similar goals as other students that I work with. That has been a rock star partner with us. So we appreciate you. Excellent. Okay, Beth B. All right part two of the Beth team. Uh, so uh, my name is Beth Brassel and uh, I work, you know, just the bare facts, name, rank, and serial number. I work at the Pollard Library, which is the public library in Lowell. Um, I am the young adult librarian 
which means I ply the teenagers with junk food, which I'm really good at that. <laughs> um, and I'm also um, currently the chair of the city's commission on disability. So my relationship personally with the, the term disability, the concept, the identity, you know, it, I am a person with a disability um, and have had some version of a disability for most of my life, but uh, in terms of embracing that identity, that's a long process. And it kind of coincides with the, the changes in my life, but uh, it's, I mean, going way out on a limb here, but what the heck. Um, a couple times I've, points in life I've thought it's sort of like embracing the identity of being gay. You have to address the internalized prejudices and stigmas or negative stereotypes. Um, so anyway, uh -oh, I'll stop rambling. Please feel free to cut me off. Um, so, you know, I've have had a version of a disability. I'm uh, starting about 10 years ago, I became legally blind. Now I'm just plain old flat out blind, mm. but, um, you know, and I have been fortunate in that I've gotten an enormous amount of support from, uh, the administration at the library. Um, so that's been very helpful. Um, and there was a big part of my life where I was just really, uh, focused on uh, sort of masking the disability. And then at some point that became impossible and a healthier relationship with it. Okay, I'll stop talking, sorry. <laughs> so. You please don't have shame in what you're sharing. It's, uh, <laughs> no. it, you're bringing up themes that have tied through every episode that we have talked about in terms of sort of this complicated relationship with disability and identity and all those pieces. So you're, you're preaching to right to the choir. <laughs> I just, I just tend to preach a lot. So <laughs> cut me off. Just hit that mute button at any point. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So, I mean, I think we've got some good basis for sort of how we're going to go on with today's conversation. And I think, you know, let's talk about sort of what we feel like the definition of disability inclusion is and what its place and importance in the workplace is. Sure. I'm not sure who wants to go first. I know it, it takes a little while to shake off the awkwardness. It's sort of like the pop, the popcorn style, but it's all good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a fire truck behind me, so I'm going to use. Same. I also do. We we're in the same zone here. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I'll I'll just jump in, and again, feel free to hit the mute button. Uh, <laughs> um. So. Can you repeat the question I had? I was framing the thought. Yeah. <laughs> and then, huh? So it's sort of just thinking around what your personal 
scope around what how you would define disability inclusion and like its general importance within the workplace um okay, place in the workplace and we can pop the questions in the chat too i don't know if that oh would, yeah no, that's is, helpful that's fine so okay. you know it's it's interesting i have sort of a conflicted relationship with the word inclusion because and this is just you know i don't want to get into semantics but in my mind inclusion is we have a set system, we have a set structure, we have a set institution, and we'll see if we can fit you into it. <laughs> and, but that, I'm not saying that that's true. It's just one of those things I think about. But I know in my, um, my work as a librarian, you know, the individuals at the library who um, have or identify as having a disability have added enormously to the services uh, the materials that the library provides and um, and offering a welcoming uh, environment to the patrons who come in. So, I mean, in terms of inclusion in positive sense, I think it's critical. I mean, this is the world we live in. It is peopled by an incredible diversity of abilities and I think it's really critical uh, that it's all represented in our workplaces. It just enriches everything. It's not easy. And, you know, the structures and the set uh, practices and all of that is, it's an uphill battle, but it's important. That's a common theme too, is that it's not always easy, but uh, it is important um, to make sure that, you know, everyone has access. Yes. Right. And we've talked about sort of the word inclusion is a tough word too. Like you can be included at the party, but do you <laughs> feel like you belong and are a part of the party is, you know, those, yeah. those, those can sometimes mean different things. So. Oh yeah, no, I, again, I didn't want to get into semantics, but but this is okay. Semantics are important. Yeah. <laughs> Include, I want to be planning the party. I don't want to just be invited. Yeah. You want to bring the wine. <laughs> That's right. I want to pick out the snacks. I'm good at it. Yeah. And, you know, from the perspective of working with students through their career planning, as I kind of think about inclusion at the different stages. It's making sure that application process is accessible, the yes. interview process folks are trained on equitable and inclusive hiring practices and that unconscious bias is something that employers have received training on and that helps through the application process, but as well as in the workplace. Um, inclusion isn't just physical access to the building. No. Mm -hmm. um, it's also setting up structures that mm -hmm. are more flexible um, and making sure that, I think we were talking a lot about that sense of community and sense of belonging. Yeah. And yes. that means inclusion has to be not just about the physical access, but also about the community at the workplace. Yes. Needs to have some kind of access to training or education. And I know there has to be like emotional and mental changes that happen mm -hmm. to address inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. And you know, to that end, the person with a disability, you know, can't all fall on the person with the disability to, to right. be making these changes. Mm -hmm. You know, these things have to be done. 
Yeah, I had the 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 pleasure of going to a college autism conference last week, um, and there's a component of the conference where they they talk quite a bit about sort of the preparation for the career and the work stuff. And there were some employers that were there that that are part of big companies and kind of part of big initiatives. And and one of the for the one of the first times, I really heard a number of employees talk even about a flipped interview process, which was one of the first times that I was really hearing them talk about that the interview process is just not necessarily set up to for everybody to thrive. And so right. they were really talking about flipping it and having a skill based like, can this person do the job? Not can this person be my best friend, which is, um, you know, often how people feel like. And a lot of us in the interview process are like, I'm going to spend a lot of time with this person yeah. and I want to get along with this person, but we can sometimes lose sort of, can the person do well and contribute to this job in this company? And so they were kind of addressing some components of even just from the get-go, which really I was very proud to hear that there were some big companies having some conversations like that. So as Beth L was saying that, you know, it, it isn't the, necessarily the responsibility of the person with the disability to do the changes that, you know, yeah. that organizations really need to look at, you know, what their, what their talent pool is going to look like and how do they really understand the talents from all different angles. Right, exactly. Can I do a shame? I'm a librarian. I can't help this. Can I plug <laughs> particular books? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's a book I just finished reading by Devin Price, and it's called Unmasking Autism. Yes. Oh, okay. I hear a, a yes. It was in our newsletter a few months ago. Oh, like it's a book so good. Yeah. So but nice. um, really lots of uh, insight into, you know, the, the challenges of a person you know, in the neurodiversity community, you know, tackling uh, the world and and what the world misses when when it doesn't open up and doesn't accommodate and doesn't value the diversity. So, okay, that's my shameless plug. Sorry. No, that's like a great segue into our next question yeah. in terms of what do you feel are the benefits of hiring a person who identifies as having a disability? I love this question. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, I was so excited to see this question on the list um, because I think that so often, like when I'm involved in a conversation around disability, so often it's around the challenges and I'm glad we're spending so much time talking about this, but there are so many benefits and I think that that's not highlighted enough. Mm -hmm. um, so first and foremost, I think it's really important to acknowledge, we were talking about um, that interview process. Can the person do the job? It's really important to acknowledge the benefit of hiring just a qualified person first, right? Mm -hmm. You are qualified to do the job. There are benefits of hiring you. <laughs> but the additional strengths um, that come with hiring a person with a disability, oftentimes these are folks who have really great perseverance. Um, they are problem solvers. They are creative thinkers because they've had to find different strategies to do things that other people have done in one typical way over time. Um, I've been really pleased to be involved in conversations with some folks who really are experts in disability employment and really are the folks who train employers on this. Um, 
And some of the great examples I've heard is, you know, if you have a disability where one of the ways it presents is you like really get into the nitty gritty with things, well, maybe bring a certain level of attention to detail that other people don't bring. How can you talk about that as a strength, mm -hmm. not as a disability, but how does it bring something additional to the team, right? So mm -hmm. I think highlighting those strengths that are unique to your own presentation of disability, that's going to be really individualized, but everybody has it. Mm -hmm. Right. No, yeah, I like saying you're somebody that can catch something that others might not be able to catch mm -hmm. that either can propel the work forward or make the work look more professional in the end or any of those pieces. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Right. No, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of having had to think creatively and persevering, it's, it's so important, you know, to, to navigate the world, to navigate school, to navigate the workplace. And those are really good qualities. Um, but also, additionally, and, you know, again, I'm speaking from my experience in the workplace as a librarian is that you you see things and you won't you don't want to have to always be the voice of hey but have you thought about but that is a role so you know the uh people who are in charge of publicity put out these fabulous flyers with amazing graphics and you have people on staff who can say, well, that's really beautiful, but, you know, would Beth be able to read that? Or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then again, speaking strictly from my, the work that I do, but every job you're going to work with people and, you know, for the public to come in, people mm -hmm. to come in and see, you know, the many faces, the diversity of the staff and and feel like well this feels like a welcoming place so yeah yeah and i think to that point you know seeing representation 100 percent it yeah. feels more welcoming it feels more like oh this is somewhere you know i belong or yeah. on the other hand if it's accessing services this person will understand where i'm coming from or has a sense or an idea um or even on the other end, if it's like an organization, like thinking about how can we provide access to a bigger community, right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I think that the thing too that we're sort of always talking about the diversity and equity stuff of like, you know, people experiencing people who have some of the same stuff with them makes it feel like a more welcoming place, you know, whether you're, you know, in the LGBTQ um, identifying group, if you are, you know, a person of color, whether there's a certain religion thing or, you know, right. different, different assets of diversity. And I, and in some cases, it doesn't always mean that like, it's the same diversity features as you, but that there is a co like a collective of right. representation. Right. Um, and, you know, and it, it helps everybody's sort of general tolerance level. I was, I was meeting with somebody yesterday who's from Argentina, and she said that, you know, 
in their education system in Argentina, if you have any kind of disability, you are still yanked and go to another school. And she had no exposure to anybody else, um, you know, um, and, and, and then she had, you know, an invisible disability that, you know, was in the mental health range. And so it was um, a really, you know, difficult thing for her because it was so stigmatized, you know, that it was, you know, so, so, so separate still. And that was, you know, that's been really challenging for her to like, you know, work through her identity and kind of how to deal with that. Sure. Wow. Yeah. And so she's in a workplace now um, in the disability field and was really kind of trying to figure out, you know, knowing that other people in the United States have grown up with a different level of exposure and kind of working on some of her own stuff um, mm-hmm. with that. So, um, you know, I think the the, the more exposure we have, um, you know, regulates, I don't really like the word normalizes, but like regulates, um, you know, people's experience that we can put a person behind the experience um, rather than just somebody with a condition or a disability. Right, right. Just enriches the whole workplace, everything. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So on the flip side, there's a there's a research note that says, you know, non-disabled workers are three times more likely than disabled workers to be employed. And so thinking through what are the factors, barriers um, that might be impacting this, it, and then there's sort of a secondary p- part, but let's sort of, we'll pick that up in a second. So just thinking about what that's about. So this is Bethel. Um, and I will say this is certainly not my area of expertise, anything related to um, like policy, law, like all of that is yeah. not my expertise area. But, um, you know, from my experiences, first, I think it's important to acknowledge the American with Disabilities Act isn't that old. No. So we're right. still working from a space of great transition and great change. Um, so I've been really pleased to see a lot of the employers that we work with at UMass Lowell are starting to put more tangible, concrete systems in place to help change the statistic that we're talking about right now, but there's still definitely work to be done. And so to that point, thinking about these barriers, like um, I had mentioned earlier, I tend to work with students and job seekers at the level of barriers in accessing employment in the first place. Mm -hmm. So barriers related to accessing an application if they have a disability that impacts their ability to read an electronic document that's not screen readable Mm -hmm. um, is something that we've seen before. Um, A lot of the times we're seeing folks who are accessing or up against unconscious bias in the interview process or Mm -hmm. who have disabilities that present in the form of communication challenges Mm -hmm. that either Um, kind of trigger someone's unconscious bias in the interview process and make it difficult for them to really see the qualifications or make it difficult for the individual to verbalize their qualifications. So that traditional interview style sometimes isn't a great indicator of someone's ability to do a job, just like not everyone's a good test taker. Right. Everyone's a good interviewer. Yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> a lot of what we see in career services when it comes to the barriers. But then 
once someone does access a job, what barriers are they facing in the workplace? We talked about that feeling of being part of the community. You know, you made it to the job, but if you're in a job that doesn't have flexible hours and that's something you need, or you're in a job that requires you to be in person and you need some level of remote work, those are barriers that I think people have been fighting a very long time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, <clears throat> as you pointed out, the ADA is as young as laws go. Uh, and, you know, we can look at the Civil Rights Act, 1964, and how far we still have to go. But um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> also with the ADA, there's the perennial issue of enforcement. Like who's in charge of enforcing this? How do we enforce it? How do we not enforce it? But, but also I think when we, from my perspective, when you look at the statistic, you know, uh, of lack of access to employment, I think you have to go all the way back to, you know, education, to schools, to public schools. Um, so, because that, you know, it doesn't just pop out of nowhere that a person has encountered barriers. It's likely they've been encountering barriers their whole life in the education system, in you know, cultural activities, all kinds of ways in which uh, the barriers have been there and just make it harder and harder and harder. Uh, and yes, definitely unconscious bias is is huge and is a thing that I think a person with a disability who is working at an institution or organization can maybe help, not that it's their responsibility, but break that down. Um, Beth, as you're talking, I'm reminded of Jody's point um, earlier about having worked with a student from Argentina who said, if you have any sort of disability, you're yanked out of your school and you're put into a different school. And so when we do talk about these barriers, it is like a whole lifelong mm-hmm. kind yeah. of journey you have to be considering because at the K to 12 level, if you have a disability and you're pulled out of the classroom and don't have access to the same classes as non-disabled students, well, is are you getting appropriately set up to be able to access college? When you're in college, if you're not getting the supports that you need to complete your degree, that's going to impact the kinds of jobs that you can access. So it's a full life cycle that really impacts someone's entire career trajectory and entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well said. Yes. And I think we need to um, also be thinking about, you know, we don't do as much of that, you know, pull kids out method as much anymore in the U.S., which is great. Um, But, you know, thinking about the the idea of, you know, we're trying to flip the thing around, like not just teaching somebody how not to get bullied, but how the bully should not like bully. Um, and thinking about how the general others, you know, from the from the bottom up, you know, as they grow up to be future employers someday, you know, that that kind of normalizing thing and and feeling comfortable and regular with the, you know, everybody around them and and differences, you know, as a 
as a human nature, we can we can be uncomfortable with with differences. Um, you know, that happens a lot, even just when we're having conversations with faculty and different students. And half of the time, it, it's them kind of checking with us around like how they address something because they're just un uncomfortable and they don't want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And you know, once they can, we can get them over that hurdle. It's like a lovely experience for the instructor and the student, um, and they can take that you know, that data point with them in the future as like, oh, you know, this, this student was actually a rock star in my class once I got through some of my, my stuff, you know, so I think that there's a, there's a piece of that that's a barrier too, is that the lack of exposure that, you know, employers may have had with the creative thinking and the creative process, um, you know, is, is, is just as much of a barrier as, certain disabilities maybe as a, as a barrier. We also know there's like this catch-22 with sort of the health system of like getting money for benefits that you might need or, you know, for care that you might need. So um, in both directions, like you might need to be employed for, you know, a certain amount of health insurance and health care, but you also may not be able to employ as many hours as you right, can, right. Um, you know, in both ways. You may not be able to work as many hours as that job is asking for, or you may want more hours, but you can't reach a certain cap, you know, in order to receive the the supports that you get. So it's sort of like the vicious cycle in that way too. Yeah. And a big support for um, something that is affected by that is um, care for some people. Some people require personal care attendance mm -hmm. and that would be, you know, highly impacted if someone is making, you know, too much, but then you're working and you're making money, but then you're paying for your care. So really, you know, are you able to advance? It's right. again, like you said, Jody, yeah. this catch 22. Um, and it's a very big barrier that exists. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'll do another shameless plug for a book. <laughs> yes, we're going to take all the resources. Okay, but this one isn't uh, specifically related to uh, disability, but it's uh, a memoir by Fiona Hill called There is Nothing for You Here. But what I really liked about it is kind of a thread that runs through the memoir is this concept of the infrastructure of opportunity. And do we have the infrastructure of opportunity in our world, as we said, starting from, you know, childhood and going through? So do we have you know, the, this, the supports in place so that you can do a job you know, earn a, a good wage and also uh, have a PCA covered by insurance. So yes, lots. They definitely impact a lot, but I can't agree more in terms of it goes back to just having basic needs met, right? Yep. And are those basic needs being met? Because uh, for a lot, they are not. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah. Um, are there any kind of other systemic structures that we feel like are in place that are impacting disability inclusion in the workplace that you can think of or that you've experienced or that you've seen or you feel like you've seen? Yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head, I, and this is uh, a real challenging one, is that that internalized bias that uh, employers, school systems and have. So not just individual employers, but uh, 
institutions, organizations, it's kind of baked in a bias against, and I think Bethel mentioned this, particularly if someone has a communication disability, but um, I think coming to terms with the, the biases, the stigmas, the stereotypes, uh, because all of those things feed into um, the structure. So that's sort of vague, but it's the thing that pops into my head. No, I agree more. Sorry, go ahead, Beth. Sorry, um, you know, along the lines of what Beth B is saying, a lot of what we work with individuals on in career services, if someone knows like, hey, my communication style is gonna be a challenge. We work with folks on developing statements to address that at the beginning of an interview. Yeah, right? that's great. That's I, great. yep, I have, and we work with them on how do you want to phrase it? Do you want to phrase it as I have a disability that impacts my communication style, but please don't take my communication as a sign that I'm not interested or qualified. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to like, give me some time so that I can prove to you that I'm the right fit for this job. We work with them on the phrasing that they're comfortable with, right. but sometimes putting it out in the open and yep. forcing the person you're interviewing with to like get comfortable with that idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps move the needle, and that also comes back to it shouldn't be the job of the individual with a disability to do all the work, but doing a little bit of the work can force someone else to start also doing the work. You know, right? right. Um, but something unique that we see too at the collegiate level is just that the entry level job market is competitive, mm -hmm. and so we see not just with individuals with disabilities, but with all students, a lot of the times entry-level jobs read as we're looking for a bachelor's degree plus a year of experience. So mm -hmm. if you faced barriers getting an internship or like we have kind of this set idea of a four-year graduation timeline at the bachelor's mm -hmm. level. And that's for most folks, a 12 to 16 credit semester every fall and every spring. So if you weren't able to then also make room for an internship in mm -hmm. that space, right. then you're graduating right. with your bachelor's degree, but you don't have the years of experience or don't really know how to account for that. Mm -hmm. That creates a barrier to accessing an yeah. entry-level job that is in line with your degree pathway. Right, right. And again, that's the barriers on top of barriers starting early on. So, yeah. Yeah, that is something that a number of our students um, face for all kinds of different reasons, but sometimes classes is all they can do, um, you know, with, um, you know, the, the effort that it, that it takes to sustain classes. And, and we, we try to do a lot with flexibility around, you know, taking the college experience slower and taking a reduced course load and, you know, and taking things in smaller bits so that, you know, some students in general just have outside factors that, that they have going on, but, you know, perhaps a student could work um, and those sort of things, but there's so many different reasons, you know, why, you know, somebody may not be able to attain all that experience prior mm -hmm. to that, you know, diploma being put in the hand and, and that, then creates another barrier. And it's it's also hard, you know, to then shake it off with the students a little bit about like what they're going to do that next year right after their diploma that they thought they were going to do, but maybe there's there's trying to be creative and finding a way that can still 
put a collection of skills together and experiences Mm -hmm. um, in a setting together that may not go right along the same trajectory as they sort of expected based like you got a business degree and you expected to join like a fast-paced exciting marketing company you know may not have um you know may not be the first thing you're going to do but you're going to you know do something that gains some translatable skills right and I'm Bethel is the one who's gonna who, who knows more about that. And we're you kind of just opened our door to our next question. And I love when you when people do this for us. Um, is this this the disclosure? Um, the complicated disclosure along the various steps of the ladder in the workplace, getting the job and through the job. I'm gonna let Beth B take this one first. I feel like I've launched uh, the last no. like, two questions. <laughs> no, no, no. That I mean, this is such an excellent uh, question. And again, that the book that we referenced, Unmasking Autism, definitely a good chunk of it that deals with this. But um, it's not something I think that a person can just naturally know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the more support that a young person, an old person, a person gets in terms of understanding what their fears are, how legitimate the fears are, how, uh, and then approaches as Bethel uh, mentioned, ways to disclose. You know, there was early in my career as a librarian, I was visually impaired. I wasn't legally blind, but I was terrified of the, you know, I'm a librarian. They can't know this. Mm. Um, but little did I know it was obvious, but oh well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there were a lot of fears, some of them unfounded, some of them may very well have been founded. Um, so I think it's a really, really tricky territory. And the more support a person can get in terms of hashing out, uh, knowing their rights, uh, knowing what supports are in place and strategies. I think it's a, not to be tackled mm-hmm. all alone. <laughs> and I think to Beth's, Beth B's point, to Beth's, um, to Beth B's point, you know, something that employers can be doing to help with that. And I know like UMass Lowell, a lot of different offices will do this when we're hiring people is we actually put a note in the interview um, invitations saying, if you require an accommodation for your interview process, here's the contact information. So not making that something that a person has to dig for, I think creates the sense of like, one, I am welcome to access an accommodation, but two, like it's top of mind for this employer, which creates, I hope for people, a sense of belonging already at the start of this process, because you should be able to access accommodations. You should feel be made to feel comfortable disclosing at the point of application or at the point of interview, even though you're not an employee yet. Like if it's appropriate and it's something that's gonna help you and you are comfortable with and want to do, you should be able to do that before you are employed. Um, but it helps when the employer makes that a comfortable space. Yes. But there's definitely pros and cons, and there's a lot of personal feelings to navigate around that. But if you've got 
a disability that you know is going to be perceived, like we talked a lot about communication in the interview process, will it benefit you more to acknowledge it so right. that people's unconscious bias is just brought like right to the surface so that mm -hmm. they can consciously deal with it? Mm -hmm. Right. Or are you more comfortable not talking about it? It's a super personal and really difficult choice. But in yeah. the workplace, if you know that I have a disability that presents in such a way that someone might misunderstand something I'm doing, mm -hmm. or someone might misperceive a way that I approach something, disclosing can help get ahead of inappropriate discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's where, again, employers making clear lines of communications between employees and human resources, um, between employees and hiring managers or um, supervisors, that's super important because you have to know who is your appropriate contact. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, it, you're so right that it, disclosure is, is, very personal and it it also is more personal when there's an invisible disability situation on hand right mm -hmm. um and so you know where this comes up in almost every podcast is sort of the 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 different realm of sort of the visible disability versus the invisible disability and like you know as you were talking Beth L you know it, it was reminding me that you know so I have a chronic medical condition I have Crohn's disease and on on most days, I'm in good health. Things are good. I take my medicine and things are, you know, this, I've had this condition for 15 years, but there was a period of time at an, um, at a job that I had, um, maybe seven or eight years ago where there was like a pretty strong possibility that I was going to have to have a surgery that was going to take me out for six weeks. Um, and, um, I, hadn't disclosed to my workplace or, you know, my supervisor that i had Crohn's disease because it didn't didn't come up in my work. It was almost necessary, almost never necessary to really come up. And then I kind of had to face it head on. Like, if yeah. I'm going to have to plan a surgery that is going to, you know, be very large surgery that is going to have a, a six week recovery. And this was, you know, prior to, you know, we had a question on here about COVID, you know, like prior to the being able to rem work remotely kind of situation that I might've been able to swing a little bit more now, um, you know, that I was going to have to kind of like start that conversation about how my work is going to happen. Um, and I, I, in that instance, I was able to get treated differently and didn't have to have the surgery. But the reality is with Crohn's disease is it, you know, it never fully goes in remission and there's a decent likelihood at some point in my life that surgery will become a reality um, at any given time and I'll have to face it again, you know, and, right. and we always tell our students, like I think about, we tell our students, like, if you just register with us, like you don't have to use your accommodations, but like it makes things like smoother and easier in the yeah. event that you want to and need to. And I don't even take my own advice when I think about that. Like I haven't, you know, registered with HR, you know, um, as somebody with an invisible disability who it doesn't really impact my work day, but it could. And, you know, so it's just so complicated all the time. Yeah. It's like we should just name this podcast. This podcast, it's complicated. <laughs> That's an excellent name. Yeah. <laughs> it is. 
<laughs> disability. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> exactly. New name, phase two. <laughs> exactly. No. True. I feel like kind of on the other um, end of that, identifying as a person like with a physical disability that's very present that I feel like I whether it's personally feel like I'm overcompensating, you know, during the interview process of like, no, like I can do it. I can prove to you that I can do it. Um, like if that's just me kind of feeling those internal feelings, or if, you know, I do feel like I recognize that there are kind of some, you know, preconceived thoughts about what I can and cannot do. Um, but kind of like that constant, like, I need to prove, I need to prove, I need to prove that, you know, I can do it and that they want to hire me. Yeah. It's a lot of stress. <laughs> Most definitely. Stress but, and already stress. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to your point, Beth L, you know, employers can be doing a lot to kind of show that they are welcoming and inviting community Um, and let's kind of talk about that a little bit more like what other ways can an organization or employer promote you know disability inclusion in the workplace well I go go no 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 go right ahead (laughs) Um, so something I had mentioned like making sure there's notes in um, invitations for mm-hmm. interviews, or there's notes in applications. Like if you require um, accommodation, here's your access. That is a really helpful open door. Um, something that we see some organizations doing is creating employee resource groups for any sort of marginalized group. Mm-hmm. So you have a sense of community, but also it's less of a feeling of, I need to be the one speaking up. I need to be the one like setting an example or being the voice of X, like there is a group of people who can work together. And if there's a systemic issue happening at a workplace, you know, you have a community of folks to help navigate that, but also you just have a sense of, I don't know, relationship with people in the first place, a feeling of not being alone in it. Something that I've been really pleased to see is not just recruiters being trained on equitable hiring practices, but also the hiring managers. Because oftentimes what we had been seeing um, was like recruiters were well-trained, but then when you meet with the manager of that department, maybe they haven't been as well-trained on equitable hiring practices. And we're seeing a lot more of that as well as employee trainings in general on diverse workplaces. Right. Right. So just making that available to everybody in the workspace makes a cultural culture of acceptance in a workspace. But also, I think we talked like just as Scotch, Jody, you mentioned the um, flexibility that's come in light of COVID in right. it really proved not every job has to be done in person nine mm-hmm. to five. Mm-hmm. So I think opening up the flexibility in terms of timeframes and locations where work is done yeah yeah, that's been a huge win yeah that's yeah I really like that idea of a statement of accommodation on all the materials that someone might be accessing when they're seeking employment it just says so much I think it would it would you know opportunity for a sigh of relief 
okay, this is saying something. This employer is at least on paper and is open to accommodating diverse needs. And also within a, a, a place of employment, within a work site to have, you know, groups of people who are, so it's not, like you said, it's not just the person or persons with disabilities, but everybody involved uh, in creating uh, a welcoming environment and, and working creatively to improve access. Uh, so yes to all of that, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, starting from that, that beginning step, but, you know, walking the talk as well, you know, I, th I think about my husband who works in sales and he has ADD and we've had many conversations um, in our existence together around the fact that he doesn't tell anybody that he has ADD and he doesn't ask for any accommodations. And we, you know, we are old enough that we kind of rode through a time where he didn't really have, he didn't have like accommodations in college or for the SATs and those kinds of things. So he's sort of has these tools that he's come up with them for himself that like work, but sometimes I think that he would benefit from you know, because there's been a lot of times where he things have been tough for him work-wise, where things have been misinterpreted in the way he's done something, or, um, you know, he'll, one of the tools that he came up with is that, you know, when he's at a meeting, he just tries to write every single thing everybody says down so we can go back to them later because he doesn't want to miss anything. But you know what he misses? He misses like the nuances of what's going on. He misses the nuances of even the tone of somebody's voice because he's just getting the rote words down. And that was something he started in college is like, I just need to write everything down and then I will go back and review it. And now he's at a place where their policy is to record every single meeting that they have. And now he can go back and he can listen and uh -huh. look at, you know, sometimes their video will recorded and he can even look at the room in a way that you know in review and was like oh actually that person didn't like the thing I said about that component of this software or whatever and it's been but he you know so we we talk about that and he still feels like he doesn't need to reveal but I'm like maybe your supervisor might understand and work with you differently sometimes when you know there's some way that you interpreted something or you were impulsive about a decision um that you know th that you could explain that better but it's still kind of like for him, he's, you know, he's been successful and he's made it work. Um, I think sometimes he could make it work better if he were willing to open that door to conversation. Right. <laughs> and in a space where, you know, you're on that fence, like, I don't need to reveal and maybe like you're already established in a workspace. And so why I'm not having a challenge now. I think that comes back to the conversation of visibility yeah. that we talked about, I think a little bit at the beginning of this is, mm -hmm. you know, the more people see diversity in their workplace, the more it really like brings unconscious bias to the surface so people can deal with it and workplaces truly become more accepting. And I, you know, hate this idea of like, you have to be the champion oh, for God. everyone else's sake. You know, as I think about my daughter growing up, we've had a lot of conversations of like people say to us, like she could be an inspiration for other yeah. people with this diagnosis. I'm like, I don't want her to have to be yeah. that. That's yeah. not fair. Okay. Like who put this on her shoulders? She Logan. should get to choose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's on the flip side of that, you know, if she decides this is part of my identity and I'm, I do want to 
like make this known to people, she does other people a favor for sure by mm-hmm. right. making it visible and showing like, hey, if you had this one like really preconceived notion of what disability is and what people with disabilities are capable of, like, yeah, maybe this shakes that. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, with uh, when it comes to visibility and, and asking, you know, coming out and asking mm-hmm. for the help that you need. One of the fears I think is embedded in society's ridiculous and awful uh stereotypes of mm-hmm. a lot of people not just people with disabilities but you know many marginalized communities that oh always asking for something or oh yeah. getting advantages nobody else gets that so unfair you know um mm-hmm. so whether or not an employer or a person you're dealing with has those uh biases it's it's yeah. something we grow up with you know the, I actually had someone say to me, referencing a uh, a wonderful teen intern I had who was legally blind. Someone say to me, "Well, you know, he's so great. I mean, he's not just sitting at home feeling sorry for himself." And I wanted to say, "Is that what you think people with disabilities do?" Right. You know. So, anyways, uh, I think combating those realities and also combating uh, those internalized right. ideas. This, this per this, uh, conference that I went to, they had a bunch of like a panel of employers and I, IBM stuck out for me that, you know, they're a huge giant company, uh, and they, they have like a group and like efforts for people who identify as neurodivergent. Um, and like, there's over a thousand employees that participate in this work group. Um, uh, you know, and they, they can, they do policy stuff, but they also just have a community and they can, you know, a new person who um, it starts there can get kind of like folded into a community and elect to have like a buddy to like the work culture, you know, um, and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think about somebody like my husband who, if there was a community that was like, hey, look, like, there's a group for people that have neurodivergence. Like, don't you want to just like talk to them about like how hard it is sometimes? Yeah. You know? And yeah. and you know, if it was just like openly right there, and here's your your welcome packet for working here, and here's a thing about these like various uh, ways that you know we our people can connect. Um, you know, it would be you know, huge. it would just be such a different experience, wouldn't it? It would be huge. Mm-hmm. So props to shout out to IBM. I guess. <laughs> yes, exactly. So unfortunately, we are wrapping up on time. Um, so we have to go to our final question, which is um, after this conversation, what is the takeaway that will stick with you? And if there's anything that has changed about how you feel, um, either as a person with a disability or as an ally. Um, about disability stigma. So again, takeaway, and is there anything that has changed? Well, I want to run right out and buy stock in IBM. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, you know, just reinforcing, but also the possibility of structural institutional changes, such as you were describing at IBM, to make a workplace inviting, welcoming, and that it's 
it's simple things. It's not insurmountable. It's not insurmountable, but, you know, sometimes it's starting with the simple things like the statement of accommodation on, you know, uh, applications. And so I, I think that's amazing and I will definitely take that with me. Um, I think one of my kind of key takeaways and places I think is also like kind of hard to sit is there's such a delicate balance when it comes to making progress in changing those stats on disability employment. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be the work of the person with the disability. And at the same time, the person without a disability who's putting things in place, like if they don't know what challenge you're facing, can't help. So there, I feel like it comes back to more of a place of like there needs to be a culture of partnership and there needs to be a culture of communication within workplaces around all things because mm -hmm. that makes having a conversation with your supervisor about an accommodation that you need or having a conversation with your supervisor about a challenge that you're facing in the workplace a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it. I kind of come back to the conversations that we've been having about it shouldn't be on the shoulders of the person with the disability to do the work. It should be on the employer to be doing the work, but they have to know what work they're doing. Mm -hmm. right. True. And yeah. what things should or shouldn't be isn't necessarily how they are, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it shouldn't, but to some level it is. Mm progress and keep going. <laughs> I'm excited to see, I hope there are conversations like this in 20 years. When we think about it, the ADA was founded in 1990. Yeah. So really like, I, yeah. I don't think I'm that old, but <laughs> like when I think about that, like I'm was going to school when the ADA was really new. Yeah. And so I'm excited to see these kids who are in school now, who are in K to 12 now, while ADA has been established and employers have been having more time to be influenced by folks who've grown up with it. Yeah. I'm super excited to see 20 years from now, how this conversation has changed even more. Okay. So pencil the double bets for uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, 2042. Oh dear God. Okay. I'll have see what I can do. I don't know. I think I have a dentist appointment. That <laughs> I know, right? But yeah. Those are good. That's, that is good to see. And, you know, you think about the people back in, oh, I forget what year, many decades ago, way before the ADA, who uh, took part in the Capitol crawl, where they physically crawled across the, the Washington, you know, D.C. Capitol to to advocate mm -hmm. for accessibility. So they might look and go, wow, this is, look at the work that we've done. So anyway, okay. Yeah. Chanel plays a little. Uh, sorry, yeah, so for me, I'd probably say um, a takeaway would be kind of um, Beth L, what you had said about kind of having that conversation um, and disclosing at the beginning of the interview to allow the employer to kind of check their biases. I've never thought about that. Um, so I thought that was pretty neat. I, yeah. I you know, um, access that whenever I need it. Um, but yeah, so that would be my takeaway. Good. Excellent.
Okay. I think we're we there. Yeah, we're there. So thank you both so much. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, everyone. This is yeah, great. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, thank you for inviting us to the conference.